This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So happy to have you with me this week for a very special interview. In June of 2018, 20 members of the Wild Boar soccer team, kids between the ages of 11 and 17, and their 25-year-old coach, entered the Tam Luang Cave in Thailand. Heavy rainfall flooded the cave system and they were trapped within. Around the world, we followed the news of a massive rescue effort to bring them to safety. As days passed, we hoped and we waited. Then, on July 2nd, British divers, my guest Richard Stanton and John Volenthon, found the group alive, perched up on a rock. As they discussed the rescue efforts, hopes of survival rested on Rick Stanton and his group. Rick is a retired British firefighter whose lifelong hobby and passion has been cave diving. While my hobbies have usually involved eating popcorn and watching movies, Rick has for four decades perfected his unique skill at cave diving and has ultimately saved lives. Now, when rescue organizers were discussing the options for extracting the boys from the cave, they were racing against time, fearing more rain that would flood the cave. A very risky plan formed to swim them out one by one, carried by a rescuer, among them Rick Stanton. The boys were sedated with the anesthetic ketamine to prevent them from panicking during the dive that took over two and a half hours. Between the 8th and 12th of July, all 12 boys and their coach were rescued alive by Rick and his group. Rick Stanton joins me to tell us about his background, what his hobby actually entails, the incredible Thai rescue and how the boys are doing, and how he's working with the Hollywood star that will be playing him in the movie next year. Now, there are many projects coming out about this incredible incident. Rick Stanton has a new book called Aquanaut. Director Ron Howard's upcoming movie, 13 Lives, is premiering in the spring of 2022. And an incredible documentary that literally had me on the edge of my seat for the entire time. It's called The Rescue, a National Geographic film by producers Ichai Vasarhelyi and Jimmy Chin, who in 2019 won the Academy Award for their documentary Free Solo. Let's take a listen to the trailer for The Rescue, and I'll meet you on the other side for my talk with Mr. Rick Stanton about this incredible rescue. Breaking news right now out of Thailand. Rescue teams are working through the night to save 12 boys and their coach trapped inside a cave. The monsoon had come early. The conditions in the cave were impossible. There was a very strong feeling that the children couldn't be still alive. We need expert cave divers out here. The Thai Navy SEALs put everything they had into it, but only this group of people who do it as a weekend hobby has those skills. I was thinking this, this has actually got our name all over it. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face trying to wriggle through holes that I couldn't wriggle through, finding a bigger space, sliding through, and then repeating again and again. How, how many of you? 13. We look into each other's faces thinking, 
we may be the only ones that ever see them. Finding the boys was the easy part. They didn't have a clue how to get those kids up. We didn't think it was possible to dive the children out. We came up with the actual logistical plan. I told him, that's a horrible idea. And then Rick said, what if it's the only idea? We were brutally honest. We promised multiple fatalities. It's about controlling your emotions and your fear. Panic is death in the cave. My mind was on overdrive. Oh my God, am I going to be good enough? If they die, it's going to tear me apart. If you don't dive, everyone will die. I told the guys, this is a one-way trip. Once you start, you cannot stop. Believe. Believe. Mr. Stanton, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you. So now, why does a lad from Essex get interested in cave diving? Well, I was, um, good question. I was 18, sitting at home, not doing very much. And my mother said, oh, there's quite an interesting program on the telly. And it was a British documentary about some cave divers exploring a cave in northern England. Uh, and I started watching it and I was totally transfixed. It, something about it really resonated or identified within me. And I just thought that's what I want to do. I grew up, I was, I'd say I was a confident water person. I was a confident swimmer. I grew up with Jacques Cousteau. I was aware of um, like diving as a thing. I was aware of like cat climbing and, and caving, but I wasn't aware of cave diving. So that, that it just all fell into place at that point. You're one of the best divers in Europe. You have several world records. You've been appointed member of the Order of the British Empire. You've won um, bravery awards for the Thai. But for my listeners and for me who think diving is looking at fish in beautiful reefs, what is it exactly you do? So uh, for an American audience, the best way to say you've, you've got the activity of spelunking, which is going down dry caves uh, and I would call myself uh, not a diver but I would call myself an underwater spelunker so our speciality is not just going into big clear caves like you might have in Florida or Mexico but going in into carrying our diving equipment into dry caves and then diving and then continuing on carrying equipment and, and progressing like that so underwater spelunking, and that was really that what differentiates us between what we do and sort of the sort of cave divers you see in other parts of the world. Yeah, and a lot of the pictures I've seen of you, like as a hobby, it seems uh, for the uninitiated, it's quite stressful, dark, dangerous. What is the appeal? The, the thing that the what the other thing that I identified with from that program was that. These people in this documentary were exploring and not and it wasn't to some far flung corner of the earth. It was under British soil. So the whole point is uh, you are everyone's curious, I, I believe, at some point in their lives. And, you know, some of us keep that up. And so it's the curiosity of finding uh, of exploring. So you're actually going places where others haven't been, if I'm hearing correct. That's really our main you know, once you've sort of developed your technique and, and you know, gone on to all the known caves, 
the one thing to sort of progress to is that exploring and, and going where no one has been. And the whole surface of the planet has been photographed. You could, you from the comfort of your living room, you could see every inch of the planet. But, but you, in a cave, there's no technology that will penetrate or find out. So the only way is to go there. And is there something in, in your mentality and physique that makes you particularly good at this? Uh, well, at the time, I was very thin. I'm not quite so thin <laughs> now in the 60s, but I was very thin. Uh, but I, I, I think it's more about other attributes. Like as I said, I was comfortable in water. Uh, I, you know, I was very calm under pressure, and that's one of the main things. And the other one is uh, it's quite a technical activity. You've got to plan. There's a lot of planning and logistics and technicalities to equipment and and, and uh playing around with that. So I I had all of those um, facets. Yeah, to explain to the listeners, when you talk about being thin, it's because you're really squeezing through incredibly small holes, basically. Not all the time. Not all the time, but I mean, that's a good thing to be able to do. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, so so, especially in England, because we don't have such large caves. So so we have we have specialist equipment for diving in in the smaller caves for example we wear our cylinders on our side rather than our back so we're more low profile for going into smaller places and to tie in with a Thai cave rescue whilst that wasn't essential it was a huge advantage for us you also you're a retired firefighter and it seems to me that certain things sort of go together here that means a lot of risk and adrenaline and and going into places where you can't see I'm sure and saving people which has also become part of because you and several of your diving companions so to speak have actually done a lot of rescues and recoveries correct yeah yeah that's true so we've I mean there are a lot of similarities between the fire service and and cave diving that is true but I always say I was a cave and cave diver before I joined the fire service uh, and when I was working I still maintained my hobby to a high degree and then when I left work and retired I still go cave diving so cave diving is the common thing and the fire service you know they, it fed into it and it gave me time off and allowed me to retire early but but really it's the cave diving that's that's the thing and how did they find you for these rescues and recoveries. The, the group, there's a group of you that they that sort of been around the world and done some very spectacular rescues. So that's so that it's a very small world, very well connected. I, I travel a lot to conferences and I meet a lot of people, but, but really it was from pursuing my hobby to to an extreme degree that you know I and and the people with me got got. Um, names for ourselves uh, and it was actually myself and Jason Mullinson who was one of the Thai rescuers were called to rescue six British soldiers that were trapped in a cave in Mexico in 2004 now we were flown out by the British government uh, and it's very very similar case to the Thai boys they're in a cave they've been trapped by flood waters they'd uh, I think they'd been trapped for, I can't remember the detail, but at least eight days by the time we got them out, might have been nine. So very similar circumstances, except they were adults and they were disciplined military people. But once once we'd effected that rescue completely successfully, then we were sort of the go-to name. These things don't happen very often. And if if you've just got one experience, that's a lot, that's probably infinitely more than everybody else. 
So one day in 2018, you got a call. I don't know if you were following it already on TV. 12 boys and their football coach had disappeared into the Tam Luang Cave in Thailand. So who called you and what did they ask you to do? Uh, I was aware of the incident. I, I was coincidentally seen a girl, a Thai girl that lives in Chiang Rai, which is really close to the, the cave. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. She had informed me of it. Uh, through the sort of channels that we normally go on rescues, we were reaching out by the British government to say to the Thai government, look, here we are, we're a group of people with experience of these rescues. But at the same time, there was coincidentally a British caver on the scene at the early stages of the rescue called Vern Unsworth. And whilst I'd never met him, uh, through caving network and through our, our sort of, I don't know, fame for want of a better word he certainly knew of us and he was the one that put our names forward to the thai government ministers in a meeting when they were determining how to go forward because he was there as the expert um, and all credit to the thai ministers when when vernon unsworth said what you need is um, some very experienced cave rescue uh, cave diving rescuers and he put forward our names they acted upon it immediately basically rang us up and said, we, we're putting you on a plane from the UK to Thailand that very evening. We, I had two about two hours to get myself together and then before I had to leave my home to get to the Heathrow in time. And it was you and John, right? It was me and John. And there was another guy who came with us, Rob, who was actually very familiar. He was a diver and he was familiar with that cave. But he, but um, uh, the, the cave had flooded so much that was sort of beyond his reach. But, but he was very, he offered very good advice as well. So the three of us flew out. So when you get there, the three of you and John, and what do you assess about the situation outside? What, what is happening? Well, well it, was, it was total chaos. I mean, there, there were hundreds of people, if not more, milling around. No, I would say not necessarily lost a sense of purpose, but they certainly wasn't particularly any coordination going on. Uh, and we first thing we had to do is establish, well, meet up with Vern and establish a base camp. And we actually got through uh, the restricted area and found a room, yeah, you know, in the park buildings where the place was to, to just to have as a as a, a, a base for our diving operations. And the next phase was to go immediately in, into the cave. We wanted to see it. It hadn't fully flooded at this point, but it was clearly going to flood to see as much of it as we could before before we lost more of it underwater. Do you imagining that the boys were alive at this point? How many days had been in there then? Uh, they'd been in there five days, but I mean, it was continuously raining. The, the water had come up considerably. I mean, our, our initial thoughts is no, they're probably not alive. I mean, flooding 
in caves is, is a is a one of the prime uh, causes of cave rescue accidents amongst experienced cavers, let alone inexperienced people like these were. So we we have to say we weren't very hopeful. But that being said, unless you, you don't know, unless you until you find out. So whatever we thought in our head didn't let us didn't stop us being as keen as, as we were to, to go in and, and find for ourselves. So here you are, uh, kind of three or four middle-aged British men with all these army people and Thai government. Did they sort of underestimate you or did they, did they realize, did they know of your ability? It wasn't a case of uh, underestimating. They just didn't understand. They didn't understand that I had 40 years experience in those sort of caves where these might be 20 to 30 year old fit men who, but they've never been, they've never done diving in zero visibility where you can't see your hand in front of your face. They've never been in, to them that was, to us it was warm, but to them it was moderately cold water. They've never been in a cave and they couldn't quite, uh, uh, and the other thing, they're being tasked to do it from work. It doesn't give them any aptitude necessarily as people. That's nothing against them. They were exceptionally brave. Whereas not only have we selected ourselves by continued development and have an aptitude, we actually do it for fun. I know it sounds like crazy, but we, we do it for fun. So we're completely happy in, in that environment. So take us there when you start diving. What is it like in this cave? So what you have to remember is it's not just a, it's not us going for a dive, the equipment whilst we're progressing through the cave. Uh, it was really strong current, really strong flow, uh, and you couldn't see anything, but the, the sections were short. And then we came uh, to the third chamber, which was about 800 yards in, in from the entrance, and we came to four water pump workers who had been trapped there. Uh, they'd been stranded by the rising water and the evacuate missed the evacuation and we had to rescue them there and then so that was a bit of a bit of a surprise yeah because no one knew they were missing right that's that's correct yes uh and so we had to dive them out only short sections maybe underwater 30 seconds at a time but they, they weren't the i mean they weren't particularly comfortable underwater that's the that, you know that's just the, the best way of putting it so there's incredible footage. Um, on the ninth day, you and John get to the kids and we see this footage. We saw it all over the world. Um, they've been there for nine days with no food. How, how many of you? 13. Brilliant. Backpack is going to die. No, not today. Oh, not today. There's two of us. You have to die. We are coming. It's okay. It's okay. Many people are coming. Many, many people. We are the first. Many people come. What were your first thoughts? Um, well, first thoughts were we could hear them and we could see their lights and the first thoughts were well i hope they're all alive we didn't even know if they were all going to be alive or healthy and then uh, and then of course that video is in real time that's what we saw we hadn't seen anything before that and then they all 
plainly walked into view and I, you know, I'd counted them before John had asked the question. So obviously hugely relieved that they're all safe and all, all alive. Um, but that was quickly followed up with, uh, although we did, we knew we couldn't do anything there and then we still wouldn't even, we still didn't know what we would do in the future. It just seemed like an impossible situation to get them out. So the joy of finding them and the relief of finding them alive and not bumping into 13 dead bodies as we had been expecting was tempered by the fact, well, we've, we've, you know, we, that isn't, we haven't affected the rescue and we've not no idea or got the skills to, at that time to, to plan the rescue. How do you explain these, the, the sort of mental state of these 13, uh, 12 kids and the coach that they, that they managed this? So well, we were asked to appraise their mental and physical state, and we just said they're all fine. So they they were all largely fine. Um, the the only thing I could I can say I you know I wasn't a fly on the wall, so I don't know. But they were a tight knit group as a team, football team. Before they went in, uh, they must have remained a tight knit group by the end. Um, when they were trapped in the cave, and there's still a tight knit group of uh, friends now. So that's that's really my you know their mutual support was what really helped. And we you know we say they played a passive in their own survival by their very nature, their their stoic nature, uh, which is largely driven by you know the cultural differences between you know Asia and the and the, and the West as well. And and what are those? Well, they're, they're, they're much more in, in tune with fate and non-blame and just accepting what's going, what's, what's happening. And, and also younger people as a whole tend not to dwell on the, on the, to them, it's just an adventure that's gone wrong. They don't tend to dwell on the mortality of their situation. That's something that possibly doesn't enter young people's heads when they're in those situations, I've been told. They had not eaten anything for two weeks? Well, they, I mean, they hadn't eaten anything in nine days, and he's correct. Uh, but, but a human body can survive three weeks without, without any. You swim back um, for this massive planning that just seems, I mean, this is unprecedented, of course. Um, I, when, every time I read about that part and I think about uh, sort of as a mother myself, that you know that they're there, but you have to take some time to figure this out. It just makes me very nervous. It feels like anything could happen. What if it floods again? You've seen them alive. They've, they're in hope. They have hope. What were you thinking? Well, well literally that. If it, it could have rained again, if it had rained heavily that night, the, you, we talked about the first few days that we were there, that the current was so strong, you couldn't progress against the uh, beyond the third chamber then. It would have only taken a day's rain, and that would have returned. And none of us, none of us would have got back to them. That that is true, and they would have almost certainly have perished. But the rains did hold off, um, uh, and allowed us to go in. I, mean, I think you needed that time because one, we needed they needed to be they were they were weak. Although I say they were fine, they were weak. And we took in a few days later. We took in food, and you know that week from when we found them to when we started bringing them out that that was usefully in in building them up and tell me about the plan for the actual rescue i mean i've practiced rescues before i have rescued live casualties 
they're normally cavers and even then they might not necessarily not every caver goes underwater some people are who go caving might actually be scared of, of being in the water but largely from rescuing those pump workers early on and from my own experience in previous occasions and practices we realized it was almost impossible to dive them out as conscious um, casualties and so the, the only thing that i could think of was would be to sedate them because it was a two and a half hour roughly yes, swim have, right if 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 you're listener or if, you know if you were blindfolded and then taken on a two and a half hour journey maybe through some uh, you know like new new york subwaves bumping into people bumping into things not knowing where you are it'd be hugely distressing and disturbing and disorientated now if you imagine doing that underwater for two and a half hours it's it's very unlikely that any anybody would, would gain would maintain their composure for that long and what were the risks of swimming out with a sedated child? Well, if you if you speak to Dr. Richard Harris, who was the doctor, the anaesthetist that brought in, he would talk for hours on on the huge risks. But um, the risks are obviously that you are in a you are underwater, and if there was any leak, there's nothing you could do in the middle of a section, and the boy would drown. So the whole thing was uh, very much heavily reliant on the, the the face mask seal and there was there was no alternative to that if that had failed or the mask had, had been dislodged the boys would almost certainly drown so one by one um you start to swim them out was there a process and who went first there was uh well harry gave them some very brief guidelines which were I mean, the coach was to remain to the last day and we wanted some of the stronger, fitter ones of the group, which tended to mean the older ones, 16, 17-year-olds, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, uh, to come out first for a number of reasons because, one, they were strip stronger. We wanted to to practice on people that were had a higher chance of survival and we were still concerned some of the other boys had, had small faces. We still hadn't resolve the whole what to do with a, a smaller face and that all-important face mask now there's stories coming I mean, from the boys about how they selected themselves about being the furthest from the cave so they could cycle home and and tell their friends look that's what they say that's fine but i i don't i don't give it any credibility to be fair and when you're swimming out with your first boy um mr stanton how do you sort of not work with yourself not to panic or do you not at all is it not a question for you i mean how do you how are you mentally prepared no, i don't think i don't think it's you know we i mean we we'd swum that cave three or uh, three three or four times by that john and myself so we we're quite familiar with the route obviously that's not really in our nature to panic but the main thing was you know you had to it wasn't about the panic from our point of view it was about accepting the enormous responsibility of uh, of a, a child in your hands now we in the course of our explorations we we don't as i say we're an underwater spelunker and we can go into a cave and dive and then camp beyond and take all sorts of, of stuff that a normal diver would not carry underwater so we're used to carrying packages underwater it but this package happened to be a human life and are you thinking of of 
his parents, I mean, you can either come and say, I'm sorry for your loss or just this wonderful reunion. Oh, I've just, I've just concentrated on doing, getting the job done and getting them out alive. But how did it feel when you did get them out alive? Well, that was, that was obviously, uh, yeah, uh, amazing. But then we had to do it again. And then when we did it again, we had to do it again. So we had to do three days and there was equal or even more risk on the on the last latter days with the with the smaller week, weaker children so uh, you know there was no time for complacency or celebration uh, until the very end we we had given an estimate that we wouldn't get you know there would be some losses and there were none there were none no not yet correct there were none which was uh amazing i, I think a testament to the planning and Maybe a bit of luck. I'm not a great believer in luck, but clearly something went right. Have you seen the boys again since then? Yeah, I've seen them. Uh, I saw them about six months after the event um, when they'd all obviously put on a weight, back their weight back on, and, and they're all healthy. They all seem to be having fun. Uh, you know, there is a language barrier, so I can't just talk to them as I as wish. But uh, yeah, they're all good. Uh, and most people are hugely surprised when I say they still go in the cave. Some of them still go in there or on trips with Vernon. So it hasn't really uh, uh, affected them at all, I guess. That's incredible. So there's no sort of trauma. No, I think that's all through this, you know, you know the, the, the network of being a, a group of people. For them, it was a, an adventure. It, look, it did go hugely wrong and it, uh, incredibly, they, you know, it was put right. But in terms of the cave, they, why, why shouldn't boys have adventure? No, no, of course not. But this was quite scary for, at least for everyone outside. <laughs> oh, I've, uh, yes, of course. And I'm, I'm not, I've never managed, you know, I'm not in a position to ask the boys, were they scared? I, you know, I'm sure. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I don't know. But, but the, you know, the cave is just, uh, treat the cave as, from their point of perspective as an uh, adventure playground to have fun and there's so many things happening for you now there's a movie ron howard is making a movie and if i'm correct vigo mortensen is playing you that's correct yes and have you worked with them uh, yes so i spent about two and a half months in australia where they're filming this movie early in the year uh, as a technical advisor and training uh, Vigo and uh, Colin Farrell, who plays John, how to how to act and dive like us. And prior to that, I spent months uh, on Zoom with Vigo just so he could assimilate my character, my personality, you know, my, the, my way of talking. Well, Vigo is great. He's been on on my show. Um, is he doing it well? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I say he's 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 turned out into a, do it better me than I am. <laughs> And what about in terms of of diving for these two? Well, it was in a it was all st staged in a, in a in a studio in a set. They're both uh, qualified divers. They're both entirely comfortable underwater. This was an entirely different set of equipment and and techniques. But uh, you have to remember that they they they're top end actors used to taking direction. So if if you put them in the equipment so they look right and then tell them what to do, they'll instantly do what you say uh, or even copy, you know, we were, we were diving with them and they were copying us. 
they chose to do all their own stunts. There was no need for any any stunt doubles or anything like that. They did everything themselves, uh, uh, and they were really good at it. Do you know when that's coming out? What is the release on that? I believe it's sometime in the spring of next year. And there's also an incredible documentary which is coming out very soon in October, um, which is National Geographic. And also you have a book. Please tell me about the book. A lot of my friends have always said I've had a lot of cave adventures. I, a lot of people said I had a book before this happened. But of course, the Thailand Rescue really gave it uh, a bigger voice and a bigger audience. And so I've written a book. It's called Aquanaut, A Life Beneath the Surface. It's really about, it's not just about the Thailand rescue. It's got a braided narrative where there are two streams, my life and the Thailand rescue, sort of interwoven as you, as you read through it. Um, it's some of the adventures, why we were, why our names were put forward to go to Thailand because, you know, we were the go-to people to call, how we'd got that experience and then sort of, you know, that experience is what led to the rescue being 100% effective. So it's how how and why we were called and how we'd amassed all that experience by all doing the crazy things we had done for ourselves that fed into the, the success of the rescue. I'm hoping that my book um, may may inspire people to, to take up diving. Yeah, what you've done has inspired people Um the rescue, the book, and the film's coming now. So I have no doubt. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I know that you were immensely busy. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay, see you quickly. Bye. Thank you so much to Mr. Rick Stanton. His book, Aquanaut, will be released in the U.S. in January 2022. The Ron Howard movie is also planned for release in the spring of 2022. And the documentary, The Rescue, will be out in theaters and National Geographic sometime in October. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe and rate Pop Culture Confidential. It really helps others to find us. See you next time. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.